Wonderful. Well, if you uh, would like to, do keep um, that Bible passage open, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at it together. Uh, Lord Jesus, we just heard there the first disciples so overjoyed when they saw you risen from the dead. And Lord Jesus, we pray today, this Easter Sunday, that you would again fill each one of us with that same joy as we think on that first Easter Sunday and how it impacts each one of us today. And we pray that in your name and for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the um, sort of main Easter traditions in this country is the Easter egg hunt, isn't it? I'm sure many of you uh, will be uh, hunting Easter eggs uh, this afternoon. Um, I um, was involved in an Easter egg hunt yesterday, got in one day early. Um, in fact, I had the, the, the privileged role of being the person hiding the eggs, which I always think is the best role, because uh, you go around, hide a few, a few for yourself, hide another few for yourself. And I had far more than any of my children, which was lovely. Um, but I wonder if... Um, Actually, you've heard of a different uh, Easter hunt that uh, was in the news a couple of weeks ago. Apparently 20 years ago, in the University Library in Cambridge, uh, two of Charles Darwin's notebooks were stolen, which uh, contained his famous drawing of his Tree of Life. And above the sketch, he wrote the now famous words, I think, as he put down his first thoughts on the origin of species and the theory of evolution. And those notebooks, they were last seen in November 2000, and then they were stolen until a few weeks ago when they appeared in perfect condition in a pink gift bag, no less, uh, outside the head librarian's office in the University Library in Cambridge, along with a printed note reading very simply, Librarian, Happy Easter, Kiss. <laughs> nice touch, I thought, Kiss. Well, today, this, this morning, this Easter Sunday, in a sense, I want us all to be involved in another whodunit, another Easter mystery, if you like, the claim that Jesus Christ rose physically from the dead. And very simply this morning, I'd love us to investigate two questions about that first Easter day. What and so what? What and so what? First, what? What are we seriously saying happened? You know, in our experience, your experience, my experience, dead people do not rise from the dead. What actually happened? Well, here are the three sort of main historically checkable things of what happened that we see in our reading today from John's Gospel. First, the absence of the dead body. Uh, nobody has ever adequately answered the question of, of where did Jesus' dead body go? You know, who took it? Who stole it? That's what Mary Magdalene is thinking right at the start of our reading. In verse 2, if you look at verse 2, she says to Peter and John, the two disciples, she says they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. But nobody ever produced the body which would have put all this sort of resurrection talk to bed once and for all. And then after Peter and John, they have this running race that we read about. They, they have a running race to the tomb. And just to say, you can tell that this is an eyewitness account by John uh, because John's trying to be humble. John the disciple is writing John's gospel. He's trying to be humble so he doesn't mention himself by name. You look at verse 3. It says, Peter and the other disciple. That's John, okay? Peter and the other disciple, they started for the tomb. But what does John do? He makes quite sure that we all know that he can run faster than Peter. 
makes quite sure of this. You know, this is a pure scientific example of what is known as competitive man syndrome, okay? That is what is going on here. It's a perfect example. It's the backdrop for the first Easter Sunday. Verse 4, it says they both were running, but the other disciple, who on earth is that? That's John. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So well done, John. Uh, You know, we're all trying to find out, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? And all you're really fussed about is proving that you can run faster than Peter. I mean, get over it. So they arrive at the tomb. John first, we've all got that. John first, yes. Uh, They go in, and what happens? What happens causes John to believe that Jesus' dead body has not been stolen, but that actually Jesus Christ has physically risen from the dead. It says in verse 8, he saw and believed. So what did he see? Well, just uh, go back up to verse 5. This is what John saw as he got to the tomb first. Verse 5, John bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, yes, thank you, John, and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped round Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. You see, the empty tomb, as it's often known, it actually wasn't totally empty, was it? Because all the grave clothes, they are still there in the tomb, but without the body. And the Greek words that are used here are telling us that the grave clothes, they are, if you like, you can picture it, they're like a discarded chrysalis from which a butterfly has emerged. There are the grave clothes, the strips of linen, they they haven't been unwrapped, but it is just the body has disappeared from within them. And it is looking at that empty chrysalis of linen in the tomb. That is what caused John to believe that Jesus Christ had indeed risen from the dead. Second, it's not just the absence of the dead body, but it is the presence of the living Jesus. It is another historically checkable fact. Mary, she is the first one to meet the risen Jesus. Verse 15 of our passage, it says, Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned towards him and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. But you know, by the evening of that day, it's not just Mary, but it is all the disciples have met with Jesus. If you look on to verse 19, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, When the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And it can't have just been a hallucination because they all saw the same thing. And then the third historically checkable thing the transformation of those first disciples. You see, there they are in verses 19 and 20. We're told at the start they're fearful, they're behind locked doors, they're quivering wrecks, and yet they become people full of joy, and soon they are boldly proclaiming that Jesus was risen. Just think of Peter. Peter, you know, a few days earlier, denying Jesus three times before the cock crow during Jesus' trial. Here on, uh, on, on Easter Sunday, he's looking at the linen chrysalis, then he's meeting with the risen Jesus that evening. Fifty days later, he is proclaiming to a crowd of over 3,000 people that God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of the fact. And then maybe 15, 20 years later, he's being crucified upside down for his belief that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. It's such a transformation, isn't it? How come? 
Take what Chuck Colson uh, once said. Chuck Colson was a special counsel to President Nixon when there was the Watergate scandal in the 1970s. Uh, he was sent to prison for his crime and he came to faith in Jesus in prison. And this is what Chuck Colson once said. He said this. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they'd seen Jesus risen from, raised from the dead then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. You see, it's those three strands of evidence. The absence of the dead body, the presence of the living Jesus, and the transformation of those first disciples that have persuaded countless people over the last 2,000 years that what happened was this. Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. And it was those three same strands of evidence that persuaded me as a 17-year-old who mistakenly thought that he was far too cool, far too sorted to be a Christian, those three blocks of evidence transformed my life, age 17. So that's the what. That is the what. Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. But the second question, if you like, is perhaps even more important. So what? So what? So what? What difference does it actually make to you or me today that 2,000 odd years ago, Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead? So what? Let me say three things. Number one, in Jesus, there is pardon for your past. There's pardon for your past. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Uh, just last Tuesday, I was walking across the common just over there, and I suddenly heard lots of shouting and screaming, and I looked around, and there was a young woman. It turned out she was uh, age 24, and she was on her knees in the grass, and she was screaming, and she was shouting, and she had tears running down her face. And so I went over to her to, to ask her what was going on, if there was any way I could help. And, and, and as I talked to her, she told me how she was furious with life, uh, she was furious with herself, uh, and I'll leave out the swear words, but basically she, she talked about how she was useless and worthless and a terrible person. And so I said to her, no, I said, the truth is you are valuable, you are precious, and I told her that that is how God viewed her as well, because she's made in God's image. At which point there was quite a bit more swearing, and she told me she wasn't too keen on God, and she didn't think God existed, which I always find quite interesting that people rant and rally against a God that they believe doesn't actually exist. But here's the main point. There was loads going on for that dear woman. We had to call the emergency services in the end. But at the root of her issue was a belief that her past could not be pardoned, that she was stuck in her sin. Yet what does a belief in Jesus Christ, risen and alive, tell us? It tells us that our past, it can be pardoned, that we do not need to remain weighed down by our sin, by our guilt, by our shame, by our despair, by our disappointment. You see, however much or however little you think that your life might be worth, 
God thinks that your life is worth enough to come to this earth and to die on a cross for you in your place and in my place so that we might not need to stay stuck wallowing in our sins. When Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross that first Good Friday, paying the price of our sin, we know that it was effective. We know that it worked. We know that our sin has been paid for by Jesus because Jesus then rose from the dead. So Easter, what does it tell us? So what? In Jesus, there is pardon for your past. Second, Easter tells us that in Jesus, there is power. There's power for your present. Earlier this week, I met another person I'd never met before. And this person was outwardly very different from the the person I just told you about. Uh, This person, the second person I met, she was delightful. I didn't get sworn at this time. Uh, She was wealthy. She was successful. She was together. She lived in a lovely house in Clapham with her family. And as we chatted, uh, she eventually discovered that I was the local vicar. And then she was super quick to tell me, oh, I'm not religious. I'm not the religious type. Now, what does that mean? Actually, as we carried on in our conversation, I would say that this lady was very religious. If being religious means wanting to tend to your soul as well as your physical body. She was looking for a power to be at work in her. She was an advocate of positive thinking, of mindfulness, of yoga exercises. She'd recently been going through this book that she'd just bought called A Book of Miracles. Uh, These miracles to help transform you into becoming the person that you always wanted to become. She so wanted to find the source for power in the present in her life. Just as some people search for Easter eggs in an Easter egg hunt, there was she searching for power. But I fear she was looking in the wrong place. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talks about the incomparably great power For us who believe in Jesus, he says that power, it is the same as God's mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He's saying that the power of the resurrection, that power that it took Jesus to rise from the dead, he's saying that power in all its might can be at work in you and me today. Now, yes, of course, if God is God, then miracles are possible. The greatest miracle of all, Jesus Christ risen from the dead. But primarily, what that resurrection power is achieving inside you or me if we're in relationship with Jesus, well, it is a power to make us more like Jesus, a power to transform our character so we are less marked by sin and by selfishness. It's a power to overcome even the most stubborn of sins in our lives. In Jesus, you and I, we can know power for our presence. And then thirdly, in Jesus, you can know peace, peace for your future. In verse 19, uh, Jesus, he's speaking to the disciples, the risen Jesus, he says, peace be with you. And he gives peace to them. And the wonderful thing about the peace that Jesus Christ gives to us is it's peace not just for now, it's not just for here, but it is peace that is given that lasts into eternity. You know, with the sickening war in Ukraine, With the pandemic these last two years, death, it has become perhaps a little bit more of a reality for us rather than society just trying to keep death hidden from our consciousness. Last Saturday, I don't know if you read it, in the the Saturday Times magazine, uh, Jeremy Clarkson uh, wrote a whole article about his fear of death. 
And in it, he writes this. He says, I fear I'll spend my final days howling, sobbing and quivering in a corner while telling all the nurses it's not fair and the doctors that they've got to invent a cure. Or will I? He goes on. And what it basically boils down to in Clarkson's view is that the only way that he can feel peaceful as he looks at death and he thinks about dying is the only way he can feel peaceful is by believing that when he dies, he is no more. And then he says, well, well, that's okay if you die at a respectably old age and then you're no more. Then he can feel peaceful if that's the truth. But of course, there are a number of problems with Jeremy Clarkson's worldview. First of all, plenty of people do not die at a respectable old age, do they? I'm guessing every single one of us here will be able to name someone who has died all too young. And then the second problem with Clarkson's worldview is it is all banking on there being no life after death. You die and then you're no more. But if Easter is true, if Jesus did really rise from the dead, then it proves that when we die, we do not cease to exist. If you are here and you're celebrating Easter, you cannot possibly believe that when you die, you're no more, because we are celebrating that after death, there is more. But you know, there is another way. There's another way to know peace, not just for now, but peace for the future, that eternal future. And it's very simply to say, I need someone who I can hold on to in life and who I can hold on to in death. I, I need someone who can guide me through life but I also need someone who can guide me through death. And if there is anyone you want to be holding on to as you die, it is somebody who has conquered death, who's got himself through death, and so can get you through death too. I think of someone I know who died last year, age 60, lung cancer. He'd been very successful, but very full of fear of death until about a month before he died, when we talked through the peace that Jesus Christ brings. And as that man, as he put his trust in Jesus, so he was ready to meet his maker. He was ready to meet his maker because he discovered that Jesus loved him enough to die for him and that Jesus was powerful enough to get him through death. And so he began to experience peace. As it says in 1 Thessalonians, it says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep, those who died in him. So so what? So what? What difference does it make that Jesus Christ on that first Easter physically rose from the dead? In Jesus, you can know pardon for your past, power for your present, and peace for your future. Now, as I close, this Easter, this Easter there was a reconnection to Darwin's Tree of Life in the University Library in Cambridge. But you know, far more importantly, my prayer for each one of us this Easter is that each one of us here can be reconnected with God's Tree of Life, which it talks about in the Bible. In the Bible, the tree of life, God's tree of life is talked about right at the very start of the Bible in Genesis 1. 
And it's talked about right at the very end of the Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation. And the tree of life is pictured right at the center of the new heaven and the new earth and an eternity free from all mourning and crying and pain and death. And God's tree of life, you know, it is available to all who have put their trust in what took place on another tree of life. A tree that looks very much like a tree of death. A tree that had a man nailed to it and crucified to it. But a tree which was the site of the greatest victory that the world has ever known. Victory over sin and shame and fear and death. Darwin wrote, I think, above his tree of life. And really my question to each one of you this morning, this Easter day, is have you written, I trust, above this tree of life? I trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. In a moment, we're going to remember what took place on that tree as we take communion. But before we do that, I'd love to close by praying a prayer. Praying a prayer if you want to reconnect to that eternal tree of life, if you want to experience pardon for your past, power for your present, and peace for your future through trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection. So shall we pray as we sit? Let's pray, shall we? Now, as I pray in just a moment, I'm going to encourage each one of us to pray this prayer, to echo it in your heart. And there may be some of us, as I prayed and as, as you prayed in your heart, there may be some of you, as I pray this prayer, that actually, as you prayed, it may be a very significant moment for you in your life. That this Easter Sunday, 2022, the day when you pray to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I trust in your death and resurrection. So let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for all the ways that I've rejected you in the past, in my attitudes and in my actions. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came to this world in love to die in my place. Jesus, thank you that death could not hold you. Jesus, thank you that you rose from the dead and that you are alive today. And Jesus, please come into my life by your spirit so that I might know pardon for my past, so that I might know power for my present, and so that I might know peace for my future. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you are the best one to guide me through life and through death. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.